bow our heads for prayer before we dive into God's word. Father in heaven, once again, we want to give you permission to draw near to us. Lord, we're drawing near to you and we're asking that you would simply fulfill that promise that whenever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, that you are in the midst of them. Lord, as we look to the story of your incarnation over the next several weeks, we ask that you would cause familiar things to sound refreshingly unfamiliar, and that ultimately we would see the beauty of Jesus. We ask, Father, that the things that we read, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would not just cause us to understand intellectually, but that you would translate it to help us recognize how the things we are reading are connecting with what we're living. So please, let your word become life to us today. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, this is where we're going first. Thank you to the young man who read our scripture this morning. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at verses 67 to 69. So the last portion of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So when you get there, go ahead and say, I'm there. And a little bit of story here. This is actually not the story of Christ's birth. All right, this is the story of another miraculous birth. It happens to be a relative of Jesus. It's the birth of John, who eventually becomes John the Baptist. His parents are Elizabeth and Zacharias. And you've got to recognize, so my, my title or subtitle in Luke chapter 1, in my Bible, it says Zacharias' prophecy. And this is a real, this is a a really significant moment in redemptive history. You see, prior to this, prior to Zacharias' prophecy, he was mute. He could not talk, right? And if you remember the story of why it was he couldn't talk, it was because when an angel came to tell Zacharias of the plan that, hey, your wife, even in her old age, will have a child, his, his immediate response was that of unbelief. If you can actually just, I don't know if you need to turn a page, but earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, this is that story of unbelief. Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Right. So there's this amazing promise that an angel directly gives to Zacharias. You know, he's a priest from priestly lineage. He has a very devout or devout heart toward God. And an angel talks to him. And I don't know how often angels actually talk to any of us. <laughs> but this was a significant moment. And Zacharias' first response to an angel giving him a hopeful message was, Are you sure about that? Right? And thereafter, the angel says, Well, I mean, you're going to be mute. As a sign to you, you're going to... Hold your tongue, okay? And so here Zacharias is. He's kind of living this story of hope at the same time tinged with unbelief. Eventually, as, uh, you know, Elizabeth's full term comes, the baby is actually born. Elizabeth says his name will be called John. You know, all the friends and family are saying, well, you don't even have family members of that name. Why? What's, what's so significant about John? 
And Zacharias confirms it, not with his mouth, but in pen, in some sort of written form. He says, his name shall be John. And this was a confirmation that what the angel had declared is what Zacharias believed. Finally. That he finally believed it. This was the name given by the angel. Again, previously in chapter 1, you can read it in chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Oh, what a beautiful phrase, right? For your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. It was the name that was given along with this assurance, Zacharias. Hey, look, look, your prayers have been heard. And you've got to wonder, well, what prayers is the angel actually referring to? What prayers of Zacharias had been heard? You know, he's a priest. He's a leader, a spiritual leader of a nation. And so, yeah, he's got a responsibility, a duty, an obligation to pray for his nation, to pray for his people. And yes, those prayers, in fact, have been heard. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was a personal touch to that as well. Hey, Zacharias, your prayers, your, pray, your, your prayers for you and your family, they have been heard. I don't know about you, but that's a powerful assurance. Yeah? It's an awesome assurance that our prayers are, in fact, heard even if it's been decades since we've even felt that way. Your prayers, my prayers, they have been heard. They have been heard. There's actually something beautiful about that name John, too. John actually is, you know, from a a Hebrew name, Yohanan, which means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And so the story of John's birth, it's supposed to rekindle this hope in us that surely, yeah, God is gracious. He does bestow favor upon us. We aren't off his radar. He wants to give us the best gifts. The experience of Elizabeth, the experience of Zacharias, which that name particularly means Yahweh remembers. You know, that all this story is supposed to testify to the fact that we are not forgotten. Even if you feel like it, you are not forgotten by God. And that when God remembers, and he does, that when he remembers us, he will bestow favor and grace upon us. Praise Jesus. That's the God that we serve. And so let's get to this prophecy. Here we are, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Remember, these are the first words coming out of Zacharias' mouth in about nine months, okay? And uh, he's just witnessed the birth of his first born child. And I don't know, for those of us who have had that privilege of witnessing the birth of your child, just call to mind the, the incredible roller coaster of emotions that came along with that. You know, maybe that was, that was some, some uh, you know, excitement. Maybe that was some pain for those fathers, or obviously pain for the mothers as well. But, uh, but maybe there was some just like uncertainty, like, is this actually going to you know, happen, uh, you know, whether there were complications or whatever, but you just call to mind that wave of emotions when you're finally holding your baby. I don't even know if I made complete sentences in that moment. You know, whatever it was that came out of my mouth, I, 
you know, that, just that. <laughs> just, just this, oh, oh, this is mine. And for Zacharias, as he's about to speak for the first time, he's not talking about, oh, he has my hair. <laughs> or he doesn't have my hair. Anyways, what he's about to say is more than just emotional, mushy-gushy talk. Okay? His tongue has been loosed, and his heart is filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at it in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Okay? So here the Bible says that he's prophesying, which in Scripture isn't merely foretelling the future, but it's really forthtelling more often than not. It's forthtelling, speaking for God, declaring what is on the mind of God. And so what Zacharias declares is spoken. It's spoken really, it has the sound of heartfelt praise to the Lord. A prophetic utterance that distinguishes this relatively everyday occurrence, even though it's miraculous, you know, it, it happens most days. There are babies born, I would say like every few seconds. But it takes this relatively normal occurrence and describes it as one of monumental importance. Because of what is happening in salvation history. So let's read it. Let's read it. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Yeah, you can hear. This is like, this is more than just... The, the, the emotional utterances of a, of a father's heart. This is a declaration of one who is filled with the Spirit. He's praising God. He's praising God not just because his dear wife delivered a son in her old age. He's praising God not just because he finally gets to be a father. He's praising God because in his heart he has grasped by faith the reality that God is on the move to save humanity. Amen. And that is what he's giving voice to. He has visited and redeemed his people. Oh man, I love that word. He has visited his people. That really is the keynote of Zacharias's praise right here. The word visit, uh, you know, obviously we, we kind of conjure up what it really means. You know, maybe someone's coming over for, for a meal or someone's coming over because, you know, you haven't been feeling well and they want to give you some, some help, some support, some, uh, some encouragement. The literal meaning, yeah, it is to go physically, to look upon. But in the Hebrew mind, the, you know, in the Old Testament scriptures, what we find is that God visits his people. And every time that that's described, it's, it's describing God looking upon his people in order to bless them, in order to care for them, in order to provide for them. And when we see certain examples of that throughout scripture, it's always accompanied with this sense of God has visited his people. Take a look just at a couple of these. I think we got a few on the screen. Luke chapter 7. This is a New Testament example. This is actually the story of when Jesus comes to Nain, the town of Nain. And there's a, a funeral procession coming out of town. And that procession of mourning and death collides with the procession of Jesus and life. And you know that Jesus always wins. <laughs> 
And so at the end of that story, when the widow's son is actually brought back to life, the Bible says, then fear, or other versions say, then awe came upon all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. You hear the confidence that comes there? Like, what? God is looking upon us. He actually attends to us. Here's another example. This one from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. This is after Moses comes back from the burning bush and actually encounters his own people, his own kinsmen, and he tells them what God is up to, that God is on the move to deliver them from the bondage four centuries long. And it says, so the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked on their affliction. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped. Friends, do you know that worship is more than just a few minutes on a stage or an hour program in a, in a, in a gathering like this? Worship is the response of a believing heart to the fact that God has visited us. It's the response of faith to the story of the gospel. That's what worship is. Yeah? And so when Zacharias is declaring, for he has visited and redeemed his people, now back to Luke chapter 1, verse 68, he's declaring the awesome reality of divine attention and divine arrival. And when we know that God has visited his people, it suddenly changes everything right? It shifts the picture of our existence, of our own narrow reality. It shifts the picture of the human existence in general from one of lonely distance and bondage to sin to finally a picture of intimate visitation and deliverance from sin. That's what Zacharias is declaring. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In fact, notice in verse 70, see, Zacharias is filled with such a sense of awe over this visitation because he sees it. He sees it as a fulfillment of prophetic promises. Notice verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. This is the story that's been declared to humanity all throughout ever since we've been separated from God, ever since we've left the Garden of Eden. The promise has been ours. There will come a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. Yeah? Eden will be restored. Life face to face with God will be restored. This story has been told. It's been declared over and over and with covenant assurance. Skip on down to verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Like these are promises. This is a covenant that God is committed to and he's not going to let it go. This is what Zacharias is declaring, and it's such a 180, if you will, right? Complete opposite from the last words of Zacharias, right? The last words that came out of Zacharias' mouth was, oh, are, you, are you sure about that? <laughs> How do you propose to actually make this happen? <laughs> will you provide? See, man, what, in our seasons of anxious questioning, I don't know, maybe you haven't had those seasons before. Maybe I'm the only one that's had a, a season where I've just kind of wondered, does God really know what he's up to? How can he possibly make good on this promise? 
Friends, if you ever find yourself in a season of anxious questioning, you know, will God do this? Will you, do you even want to provide this for me? Tell you what, we can let God fill our mouths with prophetic praise. Speaking of the future as in past tense realities. You ever try that? <laughs> Your story is not done yet, but you feel as if that story is the final chapter. And you are filled with anxious questioning. We wonder to ourselves, is this really how it's all going to end? I thought and hoped so much more. Friends, when, when our hearts are filled with anxious questioning, let God fill your mouth with prophetic praise. Describing, describing the future as if it's already been fulfilled. I love it. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Did you notice that in verse 69? He has visited and redeemed his people. Zacharias is declaring the future in past tense reality. He is so certain about what the God of Israel will do. And just like Zacharias, when we exercise faith that God does remember, when we exercise faith that God is gracious toward us, speaking of the future in prophetic past, when we exercise that kind of faith, we can, we can shift. Our hearts and minds can move from an unbelieving anxiety about what God might do or the anxiety of what we think God should do and we can go into a state of unwavering certainty about what God has already done. See, the Christmas story, this, this, this miracle birth and all this, it's a reminder that there is a covenant-keeping, promise-remembering God who has literally visited us. Hallelujah. <laughs> So now, to the beautiful name. Where is the beautiful name of Jesus here? The beautiful name given to the God who visits us. It's down. Let's go further to what was read for us in verse 78. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 78. Zacharias has kind of been, you know, in verses 76 and 77, he's really been declaring prophetically the mission of his own child, John the Baptist. But then in verse 78 to 79, it shifts the focus to the one who we're really waiting for. Verse 78, the Bible says, Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you catch the name? Did you catch it? I don't know. In the New King James, I think it's only in the New King James that it's actually capitalized, day spring, as if it's a proper noun. Maybe yours says the sunrise or the dawn or the rising of the sun. And here's the thing, you know, that, okay, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. <laughs> but first, verse 78, I love this. It, the, the setup is really powerful. Through the tender mercy of our God, that, that combo of words, tender mercy, is just, it's, it's really significant. The word for tender, it's actually a word that's uh, it's referring to the seat of our emotions. Very affectionate. It's talking about gut-level emotions. And I say gut-level because the word itself is the root for what we know as the word spleen. 
Okay, the, the Greek word is splachnekron. <laughs> and so these are gut-level emotions. This is a deep, visceral affection, but it's coupled with this idea of mercy. That mercy isn't just an intellectual choice, but it's something that's coming from the very core of who God is. And this mercy, it's the word elios in the Greek that translates the Old Testament word chesed that's always throughout the Old Testament. It's talking about God's covenant love toward us. That God doesn't have just a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about us, but his love for us is committed. His love for us is based on principle and choice and promises that he will not forsake. So it's covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It's the kind of compassion that's motivated by a tie of loyalty and commitment like, oh wait, that's my family. I, I cannot do anything less than fulfill my promise. And so these are the tender mercies of God that drives this divine visitation. And you, you notice that in verse 79, I'm sorry, verse 78, the concept of visit or visitation, it's there again, right? With which the day spring from on high has visited us. Again, when God looks upon us, when God visits us to help, to care, to provide, he's driven not just by obligation. Okay, I'll do. No, his, his arm isn't being twisted into it. He is driven by deep, tender mercy, deep compassion, promise-keeping mercy. So who is it? Who is it that visits us according to verse 78? It's the day spring from on high. The day spring from on high. In the, in the Greek text, day spring actually comes last in the sentence. You know, through the tender mercy of God, he visits us the day spring. Okay. Almost kind of adding to the drama. Okay, who, who, who's visiting? The day spring. And it actually, I think it linguistically connects it to what follows in verse 79, because that's about light. Verse 79 is about light. To give light to those who sit in darkness, the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this day spring, what, what, what is this really? The word, it's talking about the rising of light. It's often actually only used 11 times in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it's a reference to the east sometimes, you know. It's talking about where the sun rises, you know. Sometimes it's just kind of a description of the east in that gener general direction. But of those 11 times, this is the only time that day spring, or the word an anatole um, in the Greek, that it's the only time it's used as the subject, the thing that's doing the action, not just a place from which something comes, but this is the only time that it's doing the action. So this is the only reference of the rising sun to a person. It's really reminiscent of, if you remember one of the last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. To those who fear my name, he will rise, he, he will be like the sun of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. So then what's so beautiful about the sunrise? <laughs> what's so beautiful about knowing that Jesus, the one who visits us, he's visiting us like the dawn? I would say that there's an, a subtle implication here. That before Jesus comes, before this visitation, there was no light. That unless we have Jesus, 
We only have darkness and death. Right? That's what verse 79 says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And you know, you know that just before dawn, like it's, it's always coldest just before dawn. It's always darkest just before dawn. For those of you who go camping or backpacking, I don't know, maybe this is just my experience, but like my feet always get coldest <laughs> right before the sunrise. And it just wakes me up, kind of disturbs my sleep, but I guess it gives me the opportunity to see the sunrise. So when we call Jesus the dawning of light, when we call him the day spring from on high, we're saying that without him, before him, we just had darkness. We just had the chill of sin. That's all we were left with. Until he came. Until he came. Uh, a couple of years ago, I came across a book called Hidden Christmas uh, by a theologian named Timothy Keller. And in that book, he's exploring the the hidden gospel message in the Christmas story. Really, uh, really well written. But he talks about the Christmas story. He talks about Christianity in general as being the most, he says, the most unsentimental and realistic way of looking at life. <laughs> He's talking about it in that way because Christianity, and specifically the Christmas story, gives us this picture of who we are. That without Jesus, we've got nothing. Without Jesus, there's no light to perceive any beauty around us. In fact, I think uh, here we've got just a quotation here, just on a, a couple of slides. He says it like this, Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say, oh, we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. Yeah. He goes on to say the Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And that's quoting from Matthew chapter 4. Verse, I think it's verse 16 or so. But that's the story of Christmas. It's a realistic picture of the human condition, something that the Christmas story challenges us to be real with, but then invites us to find assurance of hope. But now, the day spring from on high has visited us. <laughs> and because the day spring has visited us, we have hope that our paths, the, the, the directions that our life takes, can be lit up and guided into the way of peace. Praise God. This is who Jesus is. This is what he came to offer and to make available to every sin-darkened soul. Amen. What a beautiful name indeed, right? What a beautiful name. It's a name that provides us both a, a sobering reminder of what we are and where we are left without Jesus. And it's a name that provides us a hopeful assurance that the day has in fact dawned. That Jesus visits, that he visits personally, tenderly, faithfully, and that he is always faithful to his covenant promises. That when Jesus visits, he visits not to condemn. Oh man, I was just dwelling on those powerful words spoken to a one-person audience in John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son that 
Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you remember the next verse? Chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, a lot of times people think of the idea of God visiting us as like, let me go the other way. This is the Adam and Eve experience in the Garden of Eden. But in reality, God visits. God is present. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world. Because condemnation was already ours. (laughs) He came to give us something we didn't have. Salvation. Everlasting life. That when Jesus visits, when the day spring from on high visits us, he visits to give light to our once death-destined paths. And he leads us to hope in the way of peace. What a beautiful name. So, as we wrap this up here today, I just want to appeal to you. Or maybe this is just simply a reminder that the day spring from on high has visited us. Do you hear that today? Jesus, the only one in whom we have light and life, he has come. And you know what? He's coming again. Yeah. You know, we, we may not resonate with every aspect of Zacharias' experience, but I wonder today if there is anyone, if there is anyone among us who feels like our prayers haven't been heard. If that's you, know that God remembers you, that he is gracious toward you, and that the day spring from on high has visited you. Maybe, maybe there's some among us who have a tendency toward unbelief at the possibility that our prayers have even been heard or could be fulfilled. This Advent season, I just want to appeal to you, hear the good news in the names of Jesus. I mean, hear the good news in the names just in this story alone. John, God is gracious. God remembers and hasn't forgotten you. God wants with gut-level emotion to show you favor, to prove true to his promises. And that if this God has not let go, surely I will not let go either. Yeah. And like the dawning of a new day, Jesus wants to visit us, each and every one of us, to bring light, hope, direction to any of us who may feel that our life has been characterized more by darkness or distance or death. Oh, do you want to trust him today as your day spring? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Friends, I want to invite you, if that's your desire, to say, yeah, I want to trust that the day spring from on high has visited me. Would you just stand to your feet? As we, we're going to sing a closing song, only trust him. Just an invitation to trust all to him. And then we'll have a closing prayer after that. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, only, only Jesus can possibly save us. So, yes, the only appropriate response would be to only trust you. That's our desire today, God. We're standing to our feet because because we want to give you the permission to 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 dispel the darkness and rise with healing in your wings in our lives today. Thank you for doing that on a cosmic scale. 
thank you for doing that on a historical scale. Lord, we want to give you permission to do it on a personal scale. And so, Father, I recognize that here in this gathering, there may be some who are feeling in the darkness of unbelief, feeling in the darkness of, of depression or anxiety. There is a situation that we don't know how you're going to turn around, but we want to trust you. There is a diagnosis that we're not quite sure how will be reversed, but we're going to trust you. There's a relationship that we're not even sure how it could possibly be built or repaired, but we're going to trust you. Oh, Lord. Thank you so much for knowing how to minister to each of our souls here just now. And maybe today you're, you're in one of those seasons of darkness right now. And just with every head bowed, with your eyes closed, you just want to raise your hand to heaven and let God know, Lord, I choose to trust you. There's someone, there's something, there's an experience that you're not sure the way out and you're choosing to trust the day spring from on high. Lord, you see our hands. You read our hearts. And we thank you. We thank you for being able to take us from sitting in darkness to causing us to walk in the way of peace. This is our anthem today. We praise you. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. 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 God bless you, friends.